Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm David. I'm Alex. And together, this is the Lex Rex Institute podcast. Uh, We're going to be speaking about legal issues today, not political issues, as a disclaimer. And just FYI, this is the last time disclaimers are going to come at the front of this podcast. From now on, they will come at the end. So if you're listening next week and we don't have those disclaimers, it's not that they're no longer true. It's just that they now come at the end. So you got to wait for them. But anyway, disclaimers. (laughs) Nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice. And I'm an attorney, but I'm not speaking in the capacity as an attorney today. Today, I'm just speaking as a podcast host and president of Lex Rex. Yeah. And one final note, any opinions you hear are our opinions as individuals, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. Yeah, that's right. So Lex Rex, again, is Latin for the law is king because our mission as an organization is to ensure that all of our public officials are held accountable to their sworn duty to uphold the laws of this country and of this state because they themselves are not the law. The law is separate and independent from them. That's right. <laughs> if you want to learn more <laughs> about us, you can visit our website, lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X.org. And for a limited time, so we always pitch making donations on, on our podcast. If you've been thinking about making a donation, right now is the time to do it. This is our first announcement of the fact that we have a major donor who has pledged to match all contributions made for uh, the next, well, limited period of time. We're... He's considering how far to extend that offer, but currently, as of right now, at the date of the release of this podcast, we are 100% matching all contributions. So if you've been thinking about it for a long time, now's the time. Go on our website, lexrex.org, slash donate. Make a donation. It will be matched in full. There you go. I didn't even know that, so breaking news. Well, we just settled that deal yesterday. <laughs> so now it's, Well, yesterday when this was recorded, so yeah. it'll be a bit ago when it releases. All right. Well, we got several things to talk about, so I think we should jump in. To start with, you actually recently made an appearance on Tommy Laren's show about this. Um, I did. Yeah, conservative yeah. pundit commentator Tommy Tommy Laren. A little bit of a different style from us, but you know, it's good to get the word out there on our cases. So. <laughs> a bit. Yeah, you were talking about recent revelations about DHS being entangled with social media on... No, that's know, not true. You're, you're oh, just wrong there, David. I, I talked about that on <laughs> on NTD Today. That was on the news, so oh, evening oh, news. Okay. Uh, that was a national story. Do we want to take uh, that, that sort from of the beginning, then? As, as, no, I'm fine with you getting it wrong. That way we can pitch <laughs> the time of their appearance, too. <laughs> just <laughs> well, makes it clear you don't watch any of our content, David. <laughs> what, were, what were you on the Tommy Lahren show for, then? <laughs> uh, that, that was about the Boyle case. So that that's oh, okay, the, okay. the little girl, the first-grade girl, who drew a picture for her friends with all different kinds of kids playing together, holding hands, different colors, you know, black, brown, white, yellow. And, and it said, black lives matter, misspelled, any life. <laughs> and her school punished her for doing this, reprimanded her in front of all the other kids, told her she had to sit out of recess, and said she was forbidden from drawing pictures for her friends again. Naturally, when her mom learned of this over a year later, because keep in mind, she was not contacted by the school about it, but naturally she didn't like it, so she complained. And since that point, the school has done everything in their power to make her life and the life of her kids as unpleasant as possible. So we're fighting her case. Uh, That's one that we're very confident on. So, yeah, you can watch that Tommy Loren appearance if you're interested in that. But the one that we were supposed to be talking about was the (laughs) Intercept article. 
Yeah. That it's a, a recent article from Intercept talking about Department of Homeland Security. Well, I, I guess I should say, to nobody's great surprise, <laughs> uh, through leaked documents and documents obtained in the process of uh, which Secretary of State was it? Michigan? Which? No, no, no. It's the Attorney General of, That's right. I believe, Missouri or Mississippi. I, for, I honestly, I've for, forgotten off the top of my head. There are other states that are party in that case as well. But but it's, through the know. course of that lawsuit, they they issued discovery requests to the Department of Homeland Security, and they got back responses. And what the Intercept has done is they've assembled all of these documents demonstrating direct collusion between the Department of Homeland Security and major social media outlets to censor free speech, to directly discriminate against certain viewpoints they do not like. And in fact, in some instances, they claim that that what they're censoring is misinformation. In others, they don't even claim that. They yeah. just say that it's what they call malinformation, yeah. which they define as correct information that's lacking a context or that's presented dishonestly. So pretty openly a program to censor speech the government disagrees with. <laughs> Among other things, items in their agenda were COVID-19, the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, obviously highly contentious political issues. Oh, election integrity, obviously, is going to be one they put on there. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, not great. And it's funny because we, we posted our video of the recording of the NTD show. We have lower views on that than anything we've ever posted. So I guess the suppression <laughs> campaign's working. Interesting, interesting thought. Um, yeah, I'm. You know, by by temperament, I'm inclined to be skeptical of most conspiracy theory type things. You know, I, I tend to not to give them credence unless I think there's very good reason to. So, was this sufficient reason, David? Well, <laughs> yes. Uh, in some of the stuff <laughs> that I read in the course, you know, I did a little background research for the organization on some of that material and yeah it was, it was genuinely shocking you know it's bonkers yeah i mean among other things bonkers stuff here like they had a portal that uh, government workers could go on and they could submit misinformation i guess for social media companies to then censor yeah we know facebook and because facebook owns instagram had that i think as far as i know that was the only thing that came up explicitly in the documents like that but it was you know it's pretty wild and then <laughs> What was really weird to me was the the apparent comfort level because you know they, they they disclosed text messages between DHS employees and you know executives at these tech companies that sort of thing and they were remarkably sort of blase. Use signal. About Use signal. <laughs> you don't have to disclose that stuff. But anyway, go on. Yeah, but you know it was it was wild to me how casual they were about stuff that you'd think they would you know feel a little more ambivalent about but it was just like openly like no we want you to be really comfortable coming to us and working with us so that we can pre-bunk this is a term that they used on a couple pre -bunk, of yeah. pre-bunk yeah which is not only the most boomer uh you know fuddy-duddy square <laughs> way of trying to be hip yeah but also shades of minority report you know the steven yeah. spielberg yeah. movie that's it, it was, you know, the, the implication being if if we get word that anyone has said something wrong about a sensitive issue, we want to know immediately so we can get out ahead of it and stop anyone from believing it. And, you know, obviously, if something and is they, that... They're not even paying these government employees 50 cents, are they? <laughs> I don't think so. 
You know, it's, it's how are they going to compete with the 50 cent army if they're not even paying them? But <laughs> yeah. When the information is that new that like only a few people are even mentioning it, how do you even know yet what the actual truth of the situation is? That's one thing I yeah, want to know. This, well, this is not yet a rumor and you're just expecting that it might be. Yeah. It's, it, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was genuinely. You know, well, we know that we stole this election, so we suspect <laughs> that people are going to spread the misinformation that we stole it. We got to get out ahead of that one, you know. Well, and you know, <laughs> that's the only way I can see this going down. Yeah, uh, among other things, you know, it was rumors about COVID were were some of the targets, and it's like you know, our I don't remember two consecutive weeks during the you know the sort of the the height of all of that stuff where the consensus was the same anyway. So how do no. you know? What the right information? Yeah, how are you going to how are you going to pre bunk what your narrative will be two weeks from now? You exactly. don't know what the narrative is going to be two weeks from now. <laughs> but you know, the, the thing I find ironic about all this is whenever you talk about social media censorship, and you say like, you know, what's the legality of that? What's any lawyer going to respond, David? Before all this came out, what's what's the standard textbook law school response to? Is it censorship when Facebook tells me I can't post something? No, because they're not a government actor. Yeah, they're a private company. They can right. censor whoever they want, right? Yeah. That's every lawyer is going to give that response, right? Yeah. Well, they done messed up. Exactly. <laughs> because if you're acting at the substantial direction of the Department of Homeland Security, it doesn't matter. Yeah. That you're a private actor. It doesn't matter that you're a corporation. You fall under what's called state actor doctrine, which means that you are subject to the same kinds of laws and constitutional protections the government will be subject to when acting. Yeah, and th that's... I think that's very clear here. Now, I, mean, I I don't think there's any grounds for social media to censor free speech at this point. Yeah, and, you know, that's basically the line of argument that the suit seems to be taking, at least, you know, from right. what I read about it. I, I think there's procedural issues with this because it's, like I mentioned earlier, it's an AG that's bringing this case. I think somebody that ideally would have standing on this would be somebody who was actually subject to censorship from social media companies. So if, if you've got definitive evidence that you have been censored on social media, it's got to be strong evidence because we don't want to bring a case where we just fight over whether or not it in fact happened. But if you think you've been censored by a social media company, that is absolutely a lawsuit that we want to bring. We can stop this social media censorship now because they are pretty definitively state actors. If this if what Intercept says is accurate, and it seems to be because this stuff is documented. Yeah, you know, it's... There's stuff in the discovery that seems pretty smoking, you know? <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually, so the, the state actor doctrine is a tactic that we've been using in a lot of our COVID-19 litigation yeah. uh, against private employers who have terminated people for non-compliance with COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Uh, ordinarily, those wouldn't be cases that we're interested in, but what's happened is all of these employers say, this wasn't our policy, we were told to do this by the Department of Health for yep. our state. Mm -hmm. And they think that that sort of indemnifies them, you know, that they're not going to be held accountable because somebody else told them to do it. It's not my fault. It's out of my hands. I only followed orders. No, it's just the opposite. Yep. You can't follow government orders without being an agent of the government. We are not the government's enforcement arm. The police power is exercised by people that have contracted to do exactly that. We call them police forces, sheriff's departments. You are not the police force. If you are enforcing government orders, you are acting at the direction of the state, and you're subject to the same protections and same restrictions that would apply to state actors. Yeah. So anyway, that's certainly a case to keep your eyes on. I think that's going to be 
interesting no matter how it goes. We'll I, probably... I can't see it going any other way. You know, that's they've got a portal for people to submit misinformation. It's yeah. Not... It's, it's not a subtle thing. No, it's <laughs> and like I said, it was it was shocking to me how unsubtle they were even trying to be. It was as if they had no inclination that this might be objectionable. <laughs> yeah, it was very brazen. Americans uh, don't like censorship. You know, no. it's, it's it's a Supreme Court fa- very famously said there is no brighter constellation in our entire constitutional jurisprudence than the notion that government may not prescribe what is orthodox and unorthodox in matters of political opinion. Yeah. And that's exactly what they're trying to do here. Yeah. <laughs> Under the guise not even of being factually incorrect. No, in I, some yeah, instances. That, that was there were a few things. <laughs> the pre-bunking was one. That malinformation concept, information that's true but it's not true in the right way. Um, and it's not contextualized the way that we want it to be. Right. Um, like so, so like you mentioned that, I don't know, like that the vaccines aren't 100% effective, but you didn't mention that people should still get them. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so those two for sure. And then the third thing was one of the, one of the documents that was disclosed was like a meeting agenda in minutes for oh, yeah. this like task force under the the DHS, I, I think it's you know in their like special cybersecurity sub agency thing, CISA. I forget exactly what that stands for, but mm-hmm. not not CIA. Crucially, CISA. Um, but yeah, CIA can't work on U.S. soil. Yeah. What so. one of the things that was in their agenda was like, how do we get you know buy in from all these influential tech industry people and like get them to do what we want them to do without people perceiving it to be government propaganda. <laughs> It was like, mm. Yeah, not, not to mention, you know, nothing about not having it be government propaganda. They're not right. concerned about that. It's fine <laughs> if it is government propaganda, as long as people don't know it. Yeah, and it's, you know, a little too late at this point, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we gotta, we got to put a stop to this. I, I'm probably a little bit more inclined to at least hear out conspiracy theories than David, although That's I'm true. kind of a natural skeptic as well. I'm not sure where I stood on the government collusion with social media companies prior to this. I think, you know, I think I sort of assumed that there was maybe soft encouragement to censor viewpoints that were unpopular. That is not the case. They are outright saying you should do this. Yeah. And then giving them the instruments, tools, and equipment to do it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure some people are going to want to say, oh, but they didn't actually coerce anyone into doing anything. And... I think that's for, not the test. For, eh? right. and, <laughs> the test is not whether they made you be a state actor, just whether or not you were a state actor. Right. So, so the, the, <laughs> there's certainly that. And then for another thing, it's, you know, when you regularly interface with people from the department that let's not forget, DHS was basically created as a counter terrorist measure. Mm-hmm. If the counter terror feds are talking to you over and over again and telling you, we really want you to do this for us. That feels pretty coercive to me. <laughs> I yeah, you know, it's they got a lot of power. I don't really want them mad at I me. I don't want them to make I don't want them to make my life difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so next up we're going to be talking a little bit about a case that is currently before the Supreme Court, Bittner v. United States, which it's a it's an interesting case for a few reasons. Just sort of on well, the well, I guess you I guess you could call it interesting. It's kind of the actual issues are fairly dry. You, well, sure, but the <laughs> thing that I think is interesting is basically it, it's one of the clearest instances where you see how important 
the way you choose to interpret law is. Because basically, you know, by way of background... That's like every every case, but... <laughs> All right. This one is particularly stark, though, and give me a second to explain why. So, right. so the, the, the plaintiff in this case, I, I believe his name is Alexander Bittner. It's something like that anyway. He's a U.S. citizen, but I, I believe he was born in Romania and still spends a lot of time, if not most of his time, in Europe. And consequently, he has lots of foreign bank accounts. He's, a, you know, an international businessman. And You're telling this in a way that's very sympathetic to Bittner? Sure, sure. I, you know, you, I, what you could say is Bittner is an American citizen who has gone out of his way to avoid banking with U.S. banking institutions, the, uh, instead banks with foreign banking institutions, <laughs> and then in an effort to evade reporting requirements, doesn't report anything. Well, you know? so, yeah, fair enough. I'm not the, saying you should put it that way. I'm just saying that... <laughs> fair enough. But point being, the IRS requires... Americans who own foreign bank accounts. No, Congress requires. Fair. Okay, true, true. So the Bank yeah, Secrecy Act. This is, this is Act. directly, so I, I correct because this is directly at issue in the case. Yeah. So. The, the Bank Secrecy Act requires Americans with foreign accounts to disclose them on their annual reports to the IRS. This guy failed to do that in five separate years. And, you know, he's not disputing that he failed to do it and that he, you know, can be punished for this in, in the form of a fine. What they're disputing is whether each individual account needs to be reported and failing to do that is a violation or just every year that you fail to report all your accounts is a violation. And that makes the difference between $50,000 and $2.7 million. So, what, and, and, okay, this is complicated. So, so far, this is a statutory interpretation case, yeah. right? What does, what is a violation of that section? So, you have to look at the section to determine that. It gets slightly more complicated because what's happened is the department that's put in charge of administering this uh, has, which, which is the IRS, I think, has decided that the way in which you're going to comply with the requirements of this statutory section is to file an FBAR once a year. So section itself requires that you report each time you have, well, what is it, a, a transaction that's over a certain amount, yeah. any bank account held in a foreign, gov foreign country, you know, various things. It, it, it just says, you know, you got to report each of those things. Right. And, and the department in charge of administering this has said the way in which people are to comply with that requirement is to annually file an FBAR, which lists all those things on it. So a yeah. single document lists all those different things you're supposed to report. So do you see where the problem is or where, where this could potentially get complicated, especially from somebody that has the philosophical viewpoint Lex Rex Institute does? Because if you've watched our past episodes, you know that we're not big fans of Chevron deference. Right. So, you know, we, we don't think that you should just defer to whatever administrative agency, whatever they have to say about this thing. So, you know, we think we ought to look back at what Congress passed, not what the agency says. Well, what Congress passed was a law that specified a bunch of different specific reporting requirements. Right. Should we read those now, just so that we're not confused on those going forward? Yeah, okay, so this is Section 5314 of Chapter 31 of the U.S. Code it says, Secretary of the Treasury shall require a resident or citizen of the U.S., blah, 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 to file reports when the resident, citizen, or person makes a transaction or maintains a relation for any person with a foreign financial agency. And the things you need to identify are... Yeah, so, so who they are... You know, what their legal capacity is, identity of the parties and interest, description of the transaction, reasonable classification of the person subject to or exempt from the requirement under this section or regulation of this section. So a lot of different things you got to report. Yeah. And you do that in what 
in what circumstances? You do well. You do it whenever you hold a foreign bank account, or you make a transaction, or maintain a relation with any person with a with a foreign financial agency, right? Yeah. So basically, all of your foreign banking, all the transactions, all the accounts have all got to be reported to the IRS in an FBAR. Yeah. Except this doesn't say FBAR. This just says you got to report all of it. Right. That FBAR requirement is implemented by the secretary as a means of carrying out this section of U.S. code. Yeah. And by the way, it's Chapter 31 of the U.S. Code, so Chapter 31, uh, Section 5314. So. Yeah. So you can see the, the issue here, though, if not for that sort of consolidation into an annual report, you could be doing a whole lot of reporting, <laughs> a whole lot of separate. Well, and, and that's, you know, I, I, so I want to sort of draw out the, the, the tension here because yeah. obviously Lex Rex Institute we're not big fans of taxes. <laughs> we don't think that you should have to pay taxes. We think that you should certainly have to pay less taxes rather than more taxes, right? So we're very sympathetic to the plaintiff in this case. Yep. But you know that we also don't like Chevron deference. Right. So if you look purely <laughs> at the text of this statute, it says you got to report every single transaction, every single bank account. Yep. That would mean every failure to report one of those things is a violation, right? And it's only because the secretary's directed all those things to be consolidated into one document that those violations might be smaller in number. So where do we fall on this? That's that's the question, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I've slightly misdirected you on it because <laughs> I don't think this actually is a Chevron deference issue. I think this is an issue in which the secretary has validly exercised authority to interpret and apply laws enacted by Congress. The reason for that is that nothing in 31 U.S. Code Section 5314 specifies any particular method of compliance. Yeah. So it's not at all clear when these could even be deemed violated. You know, it, it doesn't say within a one-year period of that transaction being made. It doesn't say within a 50-year period of that transaction being made. There's no way that anybody could ever be deemed out of compliance with this section unless the secretary had proliferated regulations about how he wants this to be enforced. Yeah which is what happened. Uh -huh. Secretary said we want this to be enforced via FBAR. You file an FBAR, you put all this stuff in FBAR, it's once a year, one document. So how many violations took place? Well, we know that Mr. Bittner had failed to file any FBAR for the past five years, I think. Is that correct? I, I think at this point, no longer the, the last five years, but a five-year period anyway. <laughs> a five-year period he didn't file FBARs. Yeah. That's five violations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm inclined to... To agree. And this case, like we said, currently before the court, last Wednesday, so that's going to be November 2nd, was the actual date for oral argument. And we do have a clip of that. One, one last point I want to make. Mm -hmm. I think the government's position on this case is utterly absurd, because even if you think that somehow you know, Section 5314 of 31 U.S. Code automatically imposes an affirmative duty, which Mr. Bittner violated, irrespective of those requirements that were imposed by the secretary, it still is not as many violations as they count because they're compounding the regulatory requirement with the statutory requirement. Let me explain why. Say that you have a bank account with Bank of Switzerland. You didn't report that you had that account in 2018. Yeah. You also didn't report that you had it in 2019. You also didn't report that you had it in 2020. Government's counting that as three separate violations. Yeah because they're imposing both the FBAR requirement and the statutory requirement. Under the statute, 
even if you took that as imposing an affirmative duty that he had violated, that would be one violation. You got to either count by the FBAR documents that weren't filed or by the actions that were not reported. You cannot do both. Government's trying to do both here. Anyway, let's play the clip. The Bank Secrecy Act instructs the Secretary of the Treasury to require parties to keep records, file reports, or keep records and file reports. Secretary Treasury. The question here is whether the (laughs) failure to file a report leads to one violation of the act or potentially dozens. In this case, over 270 violations of federal law for each account not listed on five annual forms. Under the act's plain text, context, history, and purpose, the answer is clear. The Act requires parties to file reports, not report individual accounts. Any failure to file a report thus gives rise to a single step. That's not quite true. Yeah, I was going to say that. that that's not, it's not the Act that requires that. That's the Secretary's guidance that requires that. Yeah, it, you know, he could be conflating that because it does say, you know, the, the Act makes reference. No, but that's the basis on which the lower court ruled against him, though. The lower court said the Act refers to violations of this Act, not violations of regulations proliferated by the Secretary of the Treasury. Mm-hmm. I mean, they shouldn't have conflated that issue. In my Statutory view. violation, no matter how many accounts a person has or how many mistakes a person might make on a single form. Because there is no independent duty to report each account, there is no independent violation every time an account is not reported. According to the government, petitioner violated the act 272 times for unintentionally failing to file five annual forms. If Congress wanted to expose innocent parties to potentially dozens of violations of federal law for a single unintentional annual misstep, Congress would have said so expressly. Because the government's contract that's, that's not a great argument either. Yeah. Congress doesn't need to say that expressly if that's what they're legislating against. Right. Yeah. You know, they just need to say that it's illegal. That, when, when we get to the end of this, that, that's going to lead me into the other piece of this that I wanted to talk about. But anyway. I don't, I don't, this is, he's not, well, I don't want to be that critical. It's hard to argue in front of the Supreme Court. Very <laughs> position is wrong. This court should reverse. I welcome the court's questions. Uh, Mr. Geyser, uh, you make uh, Uh, You put quite an emphasis on the report versus the account. What if the uh, IRS simply said every account has to be on a separate report? And so rather than having uh, just a handful of reports, you had one per account. Love Clarence Thomas. I mean, that guy is is great. That's exactly the issue. He hit it spot Mm -hmm. on, nailed the issue. I love that he talks now. Um, (laughs) I'm not, not as enthusiastic that his good friend Scalia has passed on. Uh, but it is nice to hear from him. So, mm-hmm. so sorry. For argument B. I think our argument would be that would still be a single violation because the, mm-hmm. yeah. the the way the act is structured, it says that parties shall file reports as required by the secretary. So if the secretary says, I want a separate report for each account, and you fail to do that, then the answer is, did you follow the secretary's instructions? The answer would be, no, you didn't. So if you have 10 accounts and you file five reports and you should have filed all 10, you violated the act, but you violated it once. Because the only way to violate the act is to is to fail to file the reports as required by the secretary. What? Yeah. So this is what I think is that last part was bungled. Yeah, I, I think that was a a weak argument. But uh, I, I don't even. What's he? So what's he arguing? He's arguing, <laughs> and this is the attorney for Bittner. Uh, in case I was unclear to anybody. Uh huh. But. He was arguing that the way you violate the act is to fail to comply with the directives of the Secretary of the Treasury. So, Practically speaking, I think that's true, but only because the, the, the act itself doesn't specify a manner of enforcement. Yeah, but 
his argument was if the secretary says i want 30 reports from you there's only one possible violation because it's either did you or did you not? Oh, because apply. you did you, did you file reports as required by the yeah. secretary or not? Well, that that's that's annualizing it in a way that's not implied by the text of the yeah, statute. I was going to say yeah, so you're, you're saying that, that basically there's an annual check. Did you comply this year? Right or not? Yeah, and but I, that's not that's not demanded by the statute. I understand that a tax lawyer, which this guy probably is, tends to think of violations on an annualized basis because almost all tax stuff is annualized, uh, but that's not explicit here. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think there's that where I think he's, you know, understandably, given what his client presumably wants to happen here, <laughs> he's, uh, you know, really pressing for a certain angle of looking at this. Well, he could have gone uh, my route. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I think that's a better, I think it's a more compelling argument, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. That's... And then the, the other thing I wanted to bring in here is, you know, you heard in, in his opening remarks, you talked about the... You know, the structure and the clear intent of Congress doing this leads us to this certain direction. So, you know, he's saying the intent was clearly for this one thing, and it wasn't, you know, the, the intent was not I don't, for them. I don't care. You, you judge intent by the words. <laughs> exactly. But I was going to bring up the Court of Appeals, because initially Bittner won his case, and then the government appealed it, and they won on appeal. Yeah, and, and the basis on which the government won was exactly what I just said. They said that the act says violations of this act. It doesn't say violations of directives of the Secretary of the Treasury. Right, yeah. And what the act requires is reporting every single bank account, every single transaction. Yeah. You didn't do that. Each one of those is a violation. For the reasons I stated, that's an oversimplification. But that was their rationale. I think that his lawyer should have responded to that. Yeah. But I, I wanted to point out, though, as well, one of the things the opinion of the appeals court cited was we take this to be congressional intent in this law, and they took it in the opposite direction. So I thought, you know, we've talked about this issue before, but it's a, a point where we can talk again about what is the, you know, the import of the intent of a law? Is there any in interpreting it? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The the intent is, is paramount. That That's the most important thing in judging a law's meaning. No, I'm serious. Yeah, I, you're no, you're no, laughing no. at me, David. I know, because I think <laughs> I know what you're going to say after this, but go on, go on. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, that's that's all that matters. When, when a judge is looking at a law and determining what that law means, what that judge is looking for is what that law intends to legislate against. Mm-hmm. How do you judge what it intends to legislate against is the much more important question. Right. You judge it by its text. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you know its intent. Yeah. Look, Congress has a lot of people in it. There is no singular intent of all the members of Congress other than what they put into words and voted on. Yeah. They all have different intentions other than that. The only way that we can judge their intentions is the words they used. That's just, as a practical matter, that's all we can do. Now, if we had a king, or not even a king, like a dictator, yeah. that could just make up laws and pass them on his own, that might be a different situation. Yeah, he might intend to say something other than than what he actually wrote down. I would call that tyranny. Yeah. Uh, because you you you're entitled to fair notice of the law's demands, but we, we, and that's you know exactly why we have multiple people do it is because when they're signing off on something, there's absolutely no reason ever to make recourse to the individuals themselves. Yeah. That's the nature of any kind of cooperative body. Yeah. Yeah. I, Your intent is what you put in in words. Because exactly, you know, it's. There's a certain analogy to the idea, you know, of a corporation as a legal person. Uh, 
corporation, which would otherwise be a group of individual people, right? And there's no such thing as their common intent because they all might have different ones. Right. But you create a legal entity out of that group, which then can have an intent, but it's got to be signified by, you know, sort of clear signs, contracts, so forth. Similarly, yeah. Congress, hundreds of individuals. That's why you pass resolutions. Yeah. That's why Congress passes stuff that just says, you know, we think this genocide was bad. Because now you know the Congress has an official opinion on that. Yeah, which it otherwise would not, no matter, even if there were perfect unanimity among all its members. Right. So, you know, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit. You judge the intent of a, of a statute first and foremost by its words. If the words are unambiguous, you don't go any further. You stop right. there. And that's going to be true in like 99.9% .9 of instances. Sometimes things really are drafted badly, though. And then at that point, you have to go a little bit further down the chain. But at no point do you look at what was in the minds of the people who were writing it. That's yeah. never a factor in determining intent, which I think is kind of what the court did here. You know, they were like, Congress's intent was to prevent people sheltering assets. And the way that you do that is using foreign banks. So they wanted to punish people who weren't reporting all of it. Yeah. All right. I don't know or care about that. That's <laughs> it's not relevant yeah. to anything. And, so <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's worth noting, too, say Congress had drafted some imaginary bill, right? It was you're not allowed to wear gray on Fridays or something. Who knows? Whatever. Right. That'd be a violation of free speech. Yeah. This is a hypothetical where we're ignoring most things that are true of our system. So please bear with me. <laughs> I love that. You, have you ever read John Adams' letter where he says that sumptuary laws, so, so laws about what to wear, he's like, yeah. you know, all sensible, right-thinking people would love to have sumptuary laws. I mean, it's just something we all want to regulate uh -huh. is the way that everybody dresses. <laughs> no right-thinking man wouldn't want to do that. But we also understand that it is tyrannical to do so. Right. So we don't do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I certainly agree with the second part. Yeah. Anyway, but imagine a world where that weren't the case, or at least where we ignored that, right? And Congress was trying to pass a law saying you can't wear gray on Fridays. If they forgot the word not, say we had, you know, all these records, all these recordings of discussion of this bill, and everyone who spoke and everyone in Congress spoke, and they all said, yeah, we want it to be the case that you can't wear gray on Fridays. If they pass a bill that forgets the word not, <laughs> it doesn't really matter <laughs> because they passed right. the bill that said the opposite <laughs> of what they intended. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> we got a great video on this, by the way. It's called How to Read the Minds of the Founding Fathers. It's one of our one of my favorite videos we've put out. You can check it out on our YouTube channel. That's Lex Rex Institute on YouTube. Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty straightforward issue. So we hope that you guys understand it. Yeah. All right. All right. So now the next thing that I wanted to discuss this is sort of an interesting topic for us because it's about the Supreme Court just not doing something. <laughs> but I like it when they don't do things most of the time. Most of the time I like it when they don't do things. Yeah, but this was an interesting one, and it has to do with what are... Although lately they've been doing some good stuff, so I don't know. <laughs> In this case, they declined a petition for cert on a case that involved the citizenship rights of American Samoans. So American Samoa is a territory of the U.S. and it's you know it's got a very unique situation. I think it's the only territory it's in the South Pacific. Yeah, it's it's actually much closer to Australia than to the United States. That's true. American Samoa, I think, is the only territory among the U.S. territories where the residents are not technically citizens of the U.S. They are nationals of the United States. Yeah, 
I think that's right. I think it's the only maybe one. maybe U.S. Virgin Islands. I don't I don't know for sure. I, I think that the the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and Guam. P- Puerto Rico for sure. Puerto Rico and Guam. For yeah, sure. I, I think everyone there is a citizen. I'm pretty sure it's only American American Samoa that isn't. But anyway, it's one of very few, if not the only one. So non-American Samoa, unfortunately. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> a group of American American Samoans, national though, Samoa. Yeah, yeah. His, um, a group of American Samoans who, you know, I, I believe they were located in Utah, these particular guys, wanted to challenge and say, no, you know, being born in American Samoa, there's no reason we shouldn't be citizens. We think that, you know, we, we should overturn this previous decision. Was there anything that gave rise to this case? I believe it had to do with their attempt to vote in Utah elections, although I could be completely off base about that. I wouldn't put a lot okay. of stock in that. Anyway, they petitioned the uh, the Supreme Court for cert on this case, and the Supreme Court denied that petition. So they're not going to hear the case. What anyway? What, what makes this interesting to me is that Neil Gorsuch was talking publicly in the recent past. I think last year, maybe the year before last, about his desire to see the court revisit a series of decisions from the 20th century that are called the insular cases. That well, that was in the Huerta case, wasn't it? I think it may have been in connection with that, yes. Although, I, you know, don't quote me on that. We, we've reported on that one before, so yeah. that's the reason I mentioned it. Yeah, but so the, the Insular cases, which were a series of decisions that came about after the Spanish-American War, basically because the U.S. found itself having acquired some of Spain's island possessions, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the remnants of the Spanish global empire. And questions came up about, okay. Philippines. Yeah. You know. Among other places. Yeah. How are we going to administer Most of them places? we didn't keep. Yes. <laughs> but American Samoa, we did. Mm-hmm. And so the question was, how do we, you know, the people who live there are very unused to the American system. They have their own traditional rights. We don't know how we want to deal with them, basically. And so the insular cases were a series of attempts to, to figure that out. Yeah. So my philosophy on this kind of stuff tends to be, if you don't know how to do it, Look at the instruction manual. <laughs> It'll say. Yeah. They opted not to do that in the insular cases. They didn't look at our constitution. Instead, they looked. Into their navels, basically. Yeah, yeah navel casing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and all they found there was lint and darkness. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not very confident in my understanding of the insular cases, but I'll describe to you, you know, sort of vaguely. How I understand well, it. Well, whenever they refer to the whatever cases as opposed to a specific case. Yeah, fair enough. It's because it's 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 a bunch of opinions manifesting a general trend. Right, right. Uh, as opposed to a usual opinion. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's fair. Because we're not talking about somebody v. somebody else in these cases. We're talking about a whole sort of arc of individual cases. And in that, yeah, that, that does speak to the fact that there's not going to be a very clear through line. But as I understand it, one of the sort of general upshots is that there's now a distinction between territories that are sort of on the path to statehood and territories that aren't. Yeah. And, you know. And probably the most prominent of the insular case is gonna be Downs v. Bidwell, by the way. Okay. Uh, all of them are 1901 cases. That's the only one, to my knowledge, that was before the Supreme Court. Basic issue was whether the Constitution, well, whether or not, whether or not the Constitution applies in full force to territories, or necessarily applies in full force to territories. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the reasons they have a bad rap is that there's a perception that, in large part, it was built on 
an attempt to sort of categorize the types of people who lived in the various territories. Like, you know, some people who we think, oh, those can be Americans, they're like us, and others where we yeah. say they're basically not. Those are backwards people. And or you slightly, well, and that, that's actually closer because you slightly misstated it earlier. It's not so much about whether or not they're on the path to becoming a state, although that is a factor. It's whether or not they are a territory that can be considered a quote unquote integral part yeah. of the United States. Yeah. Or whether or not they're just one of those useless territories. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> one of those ones that contributes nothing to our sense of Americanness. Yeah. And, you know. Although I think they gave us Dwayne the Rock Johnson, so that seems like a fairly offensive thing to say. I think he is Samoan. And he made that movie, The Scorpion King. So I, <laughs> when I was a kid. Oh, you're, you're going to tell this story? <laughs> Should I not? I, no, you can. I just I think it's interesting. <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, every New Year's Eve we would watch a bunch of movies, and everyone, every person in my family would bring a movie. We'd watch their movie. It was a great time. Except one year, I brought The Scorpion King with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I thought it was going to be great. My dad said, "Don't bring The Scorpion King. It's going to be a terrible movie. We don't want to <laughs> watch The Scorpion King." And I said, "No." My friend Greg said that it was a great movie. We're going to watch The Scorpion King for my movie. Scorpion King was dreadful. Yeah. Everybody hated the Scorpion King. It's not a King. good movie. So from, from that point forward, we established precedent that I was no longer allowed to pick movies. For New Year's, my dad would take my pick. Yeah, and it is my understanding that that still has not been overturned, so to speak. No, no. Because <laughs> yeah, some years we do still get together, uh, and I don't get to pick movies. Cause, and my dad will say, you brought the Scorpion King that one year. And I'll say, that is true. That's a, that's a fair point. Yeah. Can't prove that one. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so they certainly contributed to my sense of Americanism. Sure. <laughs> anyway, certainly yeah. in, in Justice Gorsuch's public comments, he said things to the effect of, you know, the, the insular cases being a relic of racist attitudes that don't have a place in modern law and should be revisited. So he was... I mean, you can kind of see that from the integral part of the United States test. Yeah. Like, that's... Also, what the heck? I mean, the the Constitution... I, 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 sorry, I'm beyond words. <laughs> we can't pick and choose when the Constitution applies. Yeah. It applies when it says it applies. And, and it's, it's a little bit, it actually ends up getting even worse than that, because what, what ends up happening down the road from the insular cases is they say that fundamental constitutional rights still do apply yeah. to people who are in these U.S. territories. And then just gradually over time, kind of arbitrarily make more and more rights fundamental. Right. So, yeah, th that brings in the the problem of how do you decide which ones are really fundamental. If they're in the Constitution, which is the supreme law of the land, shouldn't they all be fundamental rights? Yes. Yes, they should be. You'd think. <laughs> but Yeah. Now, th this is a slightly more complex issue than we're kind of making it out to be, mm -hmm. uh, because subject to the jurisdiction of the United States is not an entirely straightforward concept. One of the yeah. things that's kind of been ignored by a lot of legal commentators in recent decades is the distinction between territorial jurisdiction and political jurisdiction. You know, obviously, so territorial jurisdiction is jurisdiction over anybody who's within the territory of the United States. Right. Political means that they're actually sub, they, they have jurisdiction over you as a citizen. Yeah. So a lot of what gets confused oftentimes, particularly in the context of uh, illegal immigration, uh, people, or, or um, you know, birthright citizenship is where this gets confused. Uh, people have taken this to mean that because the 14th Amendment says that all persons born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof shall be citizens, people have taken that to mean that anybody in the United States is a citizen. 
essentially reading that clause of the 14th Amendment as redundant. Right. That's where they get things like birthright citizenship. That's where they get things like, you know, yeah, basically birthright citizenship is the big one they misunderstand there. Subject to the jurisdiction there, too, refers very clearly to political jurisdiction, which means you have to be legally able to pass on citizenship at the time at which that occurs. That's a, a, an issue we don't really need to get into today. If you guys are interested in the discussion of birthright citizenship, uh, that's one that I am very prepared to speak on. Yeah. We've done a lot of work on that subject. All that to say, we are not saying that all persons born in the United States are citizens. That's just patently untrue. 14th Amendment doesn't say that. 14th Amendment actually very clearly refers to territorial jurisdiction later in the same amendment, therefore making it clear that the earlier reference, which says jurisdiction thereto, cannot possibly be a reference to that, must be political jurisdiction. So, you know, don't take our argument further than it goes. We don't extend it that far. I think that's an, that's an erroneous application of the principle. So the Supreme Court will not be hearing this. And I, yeah, they didn't want to. Yeah, I think it's interesting among the parties opposing, you know, this group, it's I'm going to butcher the, the pronunciation of his name, but it's something like Fittisamanu. I'm not familiar at all with Samoan language, so I don't know how I'm supposed to say it. But among the, the parties filing an opposition. Maybe if they were an integral part of the United States, you would. <laughs> I don't know that that's true, but so, <laughs> anyway, so, you know, this group of American Samoans challenging and saying, no, we should be automatic citizens among the parties opposing that are actually the government of American Samoa. And I, so I, I did some research onto that and I was like, why would that be the case? What's the angle here? And I thought it was very interesting, actually. The actual political system for American Samoa has some things that would have to be thrown out if the Constitution fully applied. They have yeah. a sort of claim. They do not have a Republican form of government. Yeah, they, they have uh, basically. Which, is, which has been ruled to be a non-justiciable clause of the Constitution, by the way. That's true. And, and, and sort of, you know, we, there's, we actually think it is justiciable, Lex Rex Institute does, but that's sort of the accepted doctrine. Yeah, on this, that's received wisdom. Yeah, so Supreme Court knows, and that's kind of the funny thing that's going on behind the scenes here. They know that if they overrule the insular cases, <laughs> that issue is going to have to be resolved. You can't have a tribal clan system yeah. as, as a part of the United States. There, there you know? is one element <laughs> of it that I think is would be less controversial, which is the U.S. Constitution does not allow for titles of nobility, which American uh -huh. Samoa retains. So that would be, you know, maybe that alone would be reason enough for them not to want to you know, have, have this change happen. But I suspect that you're right, though, that it's actually broader. You know, yeah. uh, among other things, most property in American Samoa turns out to be sort of communally owned by tribes, by clans. They have sort of tribal representation in their government. So a lot of stuff that probably would not be, you'd have to work very hard to find it compatible with the Republican form of it's government not, It's flat out not yeah. compatible. Yeah. So, but that, that's sort of the issue. And, and why did this whole problem arise? That's worth looking at. We mentioned that U.S. came into possession of these territories after the Spanish-American War. Yeah. That was the problem, right? Is that we incorporated territories into the United States without following any of the constitutional procedures for doing it. Yeah. The U.S. Constitution doesn't really have a mechanic for conquest. 
in that sort of right. in that sort of naked form anyway. Yeah, <laughs> it was not really part of the founders' vision. No, uh, we. I mean, it, it's if we wanted to administer those territories under their own sovereignty, yeah. I think that's totally fine. We can set. I mean, we did that in J- with Japan after World War II. Uh, we did it with the Philippines. Yeah, I, I guess kind of effectively became that over time with the Philippines. Yeah, no problem with that. You can administer a foreign government. I'd prefer we didn't. It's because it's expensive and it's a liability, and yeah. I think there are certain <laughs> imperialism issues there. But we can do that. You know, that's something that we can feasibly do under the Constitution. Yeah. Whereas Con- conquest of foreign nation doesn't work real well with the Constitution, and no. you're probably not going to make it compatible. No, and you know I think that was probably part of the intent. <laughs> they didn't really want to be a power that was interested in, in territorial acquisition through conquest. That wasn't really right. part of the vision. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, Manifest Destiny has been so misunderstood yeah. in recent years in history. It was never about conquest of territory. I guess we could probably do an episode just on that. I won't get into it too much, but that was not what the founders had in mind when they would have referred to Manifest Destiny. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's what in fact happened was not conquest either. You know, did everything go well? Yeah, it was it was not conquest, but it also wasn't compatible with the founders' vision. Yeah, specifically because it didn't retain autonomy for the Indian tribe. Yeah, it's anyway. That, that's an issue for another day. But anyway, I, I thought this was an interesting issue, though, particularly in light of Justice Gorsuch's evident desire to revisit some of these issues. But one of the things I love about Gorsuch, and this is I love this because I'm from California. You know, we're way out on the West Coast here. Gorsuch now after Breyer has left the court, is the sole representative of the West, like the, I don't want to say Western half of the country, the Western two-thirds yeah, of the just country. just about. <laughs> now that Breyer is gone, there are a lot of issues that we encounter out here that you folks back East just don't encounter. Yeah. And you know, things having to do with tribal sovereignty for Indian nations. Yep. Uh, things having to do with, well, Samoa. I mean, that's even further out west than we are. <laughs> but at least it's, you know, in the Pacific, um, which is relevant, on, you know. The- yeah, but there's there's a huge normalcy bias that I, th- I think a lot of people in the East have, that America is a certain kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think that's much less present out west. I've really appreciated Justice Gorsuch standing up for tribal sovereignty, standing up for American territories. Yeah, uh, I think that's hugely important. Yeah, we we are running very late at this moment, so um, I'm thinking. Yeah, oh, so that you know what that means then. Mm-hmm. It means we're transitioning into our next section, everyone's favorite section of this podcast, where you learn a little bit of the absurdity about American law and law throughout the world. Captain Kangaroo Court. So buckle your seatbelts. We're in for a wild ride once again. All right. So the headline reads. Court reporter is ordered to meet deadline or go to jail with her equipment until work is done. What? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a court reporter. This this requires a little more explanation. Yeah. So a court reporter who you know, as we'll see, is apparently very very far behind in producing some court records, and has been refusing to to you know put the work in to get them ready. <laughs> has apparently right. tried the patience of the court enough that they are going to have her be... Just submit it with all the typos. You know, you typed it contemporaneously. That's, well... Like, just make them correct So it, you know? it's, <laughs> it, it's an interesting case because it's actually like the opposite of sort of a work release from jail thing. They want her to go to jail every day, be locked in the jail and do her work, and then only be released 
<laughs> that's like what Gene Roddenberry did to Harlan Ellison. That's a <laughs> sorry, Star Trek fan, but that's. I mean, I know both of those names. I mean, I I, I want to say like this is a Thirteenth Amendment violation. I don't think it is technically because, you know, it's not. Well, I don't know. Like, it, it, I can't speak to whether or not this is uh, constitutional, but... It's weird. Yeah. It's really weird. So, a court reporter in Texas who blamed her missed deadlines on a lawyer's, quote, constant calling at least twice per day <laughs> faces a new oh deadline with consequences. So, the 12th Court of Appeals found the court reporter, we'll leave her name out of it as usual, in contempt Monday after she sought four extensions, the first two of which were granted. And then she missed the last deadline, which was set for September 22nd. I told them it would take longer with their constant calling. <laughs> then they told me that I lacked professionalism. Mr. Raich was the main one doing all that. Uh-huh. Mr. Raich is the lawyer, I assume. Yeah. Who then said that her allegations about the calls were fiction, and he had called her only once, and that there was no discussion about her professionalism. That's so strange. And he says, I would also point out that none of her three requests for extension of time stated or suggested that the delay was somehow due to fielding phone calls from my law firm. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. All right, then. She, yeah. Also, you can just hang up. If it's wasting too much of your time, just hang up the phone. You'd think. Yeah, you'd think. That one's really weird. I don't have anything else to say about that. I'm. It doesn't, I, I don't think a judge has the power to do that. It's, it sure sounds like forced labor to you, me. You'd think, yeah. Uh, I'd probably need to know a little more detail about it, but that's that's strange. That, that doesn't fit within my frame of reference. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this was, you know, the, the, the one key element here, because the, the headline makes it sound like they're just going to imprison her, which is not quite what's happening. But uh, they said if she misses the deadline, which was Halloween, and I'm going to assume based on the way the rest of the story goes, she probably did miss it. She will have to bring her equipment to the Smith County Jail and work on completing her work from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on weekdays. A deputy will supervise her work, and she will have to eat her lunch, quote, on the premises. All right. Yep. <laughs> All right. So that one, that may be one of the more unusual <laughs> things we've ever had. Yeah, that one's, that's very strange. All right. So for the audience, if you're not familiar, CLE is an acronym for Continuing legal education. So that's what you need to know for this one. Lawyer. Yeah, you're required to do it to keep your bar license. Yeah. So lawyer accused of relying on staffer to take CLE classes gets sanctioned reprieve if he accepts indigent cases. So basically. <laughs> I, bet, I bet a lot of lawyers do that. Yeah. Uh, most CLE is pretty useless. Like it's, it's <laughs> Occasionally you go to a really good one. But it's most of them are just because you have to do it. Yeah. This is obligatory to do CLE. Yeah. A lot of the providers just kind of exploit the fact that you can get money for providing essentially nothing. So most of them are not. Yeah. Like uh, great. I, 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 I'm actually in a professional organization for my CLE. So like we we educate each other basically. It's called the American Inns of Court. That one's really good. Yeah. But most of the ones that you buy and like watch online are just terrible. Yeah. I, I think the you know the closest analogy most people will be familiar with is like when you have to do like annual workplace safety training or whatever. And it's like, if you work uh-huh. at an yeah. office job yeah. and it's like, you know, stretch every once in a while, you know, you should try to move sometimes for your body. Um, like that sort don't of thing. Don't be an alcoholic. Yeah, that, that sort you know, of thing. It's, <laughs> there's a lot of don't be an alcoholic ones. There. Yeah, a lot of yeah that's true. <laughs> Which is maybe a sad commentary, <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway. Where this gets interesting, though, and so the, the story as it goes, basically, is that this attorney realized he was way behind on all the CLE he was supposed to do. And so he signed up to do all of it, like, in one day, and then realized he had other appointments and couldn't do it. 
So he told his <laughs> he told his secretary or clerk or somebody just log me in because it's like a, 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 a webinar thing. Just log me into it, and then you know th- it'll show that I attended. Gosh, um, that is way too familiar. Like I'd like to make fun of this guy, but like that is <laughs> is way too familiar. Like it's it's you forget about it until it's due, and then it's like oh no, I got to cram all of them. That, that's why I'm part of an organization that does it because otherwise. This is what's just going to happen. Like, it's always going to be a lower priority than something else. Yeah. So. Where, where this gets interesting, though, is so this guy is in Maine, and the Maine Superior Court said, we'll suspend you for a year, but you can, you know, have that stayed if you actually do the CLE. So that's step one. And then if you take on work, like court appointed work for, people who can't afford representation. And this is where it gets really interesting because it turns out, I didn't know this, Maine doesn't have public defenders. So they rely on ordinary attorneys to do what would otherwise be public defender work. But they, they pay them though, I'm sure. In this case- Gideon v. Wainwright requires that you, you provide defense for indigent um, defendants. Yeah, yeah, but you know, apparently without having people who, that's their entire job though. Anyway, but in the, Complicated by the fact that so the the you know the organization that administers that sort of thing that sort of assigns farms out those cases doesn't want him to do it. They're like, no, we we aren't willing to take him on. <laughs> and so wow. this guy may be. Right. Is that a state state agency or is that a uh, private company? Uh, it's uh, I, I believe it's a, a nonprofit organization from what I remember. Okay, yeah, then they can probably do that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny. Wow. Yeah. So this guy, yeah, may find himself in in quite a bit of a bind <laughs> if they're not willing yeah. to let him take on these cases. Maybe he'll have to cram all of them in at the last minute. Yeah. You know, maybe the, the same strategy. <laughs> I'll take on six public defender cases in one day, and I'll, I'll have my clerk do them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's much worse if you have your client, <laughs> you have your clerk handle your cases. Yeah. I think that that would probably be more than neither a, one's great. More but. than a one year suspension, I would guess, if you do that. Yeah. All right, that's all today, folks, for the weird, wacky, wild, wonderful world of law throughout the United States. Well, all U.S. today, so there's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Captain Kangaroo Court. So we'll see you folks again next week. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Yep, and that's going to do it for this episode as well. As always, we thank you for listening, and we hope that you'll listen again. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. See ya.